Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. It's a podcast that hopes to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also seeks to help make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. I think this is important because decisions about the use of force and armed conflict are among the most important that any government can make. And an understanding of the relevant legal regimes is essential to assessing such decisions and to holding governments accountable. So this podcast hopes to contribute to improving the public discourse on these issues. Our guest today is Professor Terry Gill from the University of Amsterdam, Center for International Law, and also the Netherlands Defense Academy. Terry will be very well known to many listeners as he has written extensively on both use at bellum, international humanitarian law, as well as military law. And as Mike Schmidt indicated in the last episode, Terry was part of the panel of experts on the Talon Manual on the International Law of Cyber Operations. I came to know Terry when I was a visiting scholar at the University of Amsterdam in 2019. He was one of several people there, along with Kevin John Heller, who's already been on the podcast, who made me feel very much at home at the Center of International Law. And Terry and I had several debates over my article on the unwilling or unable doctrine, which I was just finishing up at the time. We disagreed on many aspects, but I always came away from our discussions with what felt like a deeper understanding of the issues, and our discussions were always a lot of fun. So in today's episode, we're going to go back to some of those very issues. Terry recently published an article together with Kinga Tiborizabo called 12 Questions on Self-Defense Against Non-State Actors, in which they examine the justification of the use of force in self-defense against NSAs within the territory of a non-consenting state, where that territorial state is not exercising any control over or is not substantially involved in the operations of the NSA. In other words, where the armed attack of the NSA cannot be attributed to the territorial state, a situation in which many would argue there is not a justification for use of force against or within the territory of the territorial state. And what is for me most interesting about their argument is the extent to which they place the principle of necessity at the very core of their argument and construe necessity in very narrow and strict terms, quite unlike many of those who support the so-called unwilling or unable doctrine, which, to refresh people's recollection, is an argument that states may use force in self-defense against NSAs within the territory of a state that is either unable or unwilling to prevent the NSA from mounting armed attacks against the defending state. It's a doctrine that has been used to justify the drone strikes against members of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen, for instance, or insurgents operating in the tribal provinces of Pakistan. So with that, let me leave it there and get to our conversation. I bring you Terry Gill. Well, Terry Gill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making time for this. And as you know, before we dive into the substance, I've been asking guests to the podcast to share something about themselves, uh, that's something a little off the wall or even just something that most of your colleagues might not know about you. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, Craig. It's, uh, it's nice to see you again uh, after our time in Amsterdam. It is indeed. I enjoyed, uh, enjoyed our talks and our meetings there. Uh, and well, I mean, I guess uh, one of the things that, that characterizes uh, me, if you want to talk about me a little bit, is 
people sometimes ask me, you know, uh, the Dutch are always very curious as to what brought someone who originally hailed from El Paso, Texas, to live in their country. And I, I say, you know, it was, it wasn't the weather. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it didn't go for the climate. <laughs> Although if I wanted to be a smartass, I suppose I could say that. And, but I, I've always had this fascination for Europe and its, uh, its history and culture. And, um, so it 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 was a, a sort of a interesting thing for me when uh, my first exposure to any place outside the United States, except for a few border towns in Mexico, since I grew up in El Paso, I knew a few of those, but uh, was Amsterdam in 1967. When the June uh, 1967 war broke out, my parents were on their way to Saudi Arabia. My dad had retired just from the army after 22 years in the, in the army. In the last years he was in, he was in the air defense uh, uh, school at Fort Bliss in El Paso, teaching NATO and other countries uh, surface-to-air missile technology. Uh, you know how to work with Hawk and and uh, Nike Hercules before that. Um, so when Saudi Arabia decided to buy Hawk, he uh, after he'd retired, he was looking for a job in the school system, but that that seemed to fit him pretty well. So. He headed off there to basically do as a civilian what he'd been doing the last years of his military career. And we ended up in Amsterdam for over a week waiting for permission to travel on. And I kind of fell in love with the place. Um, it was uh, so I, I went back to, to my old love later and uh, have decided to marry her. Um, <laughs> so that's why I live there. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, and, uh, you know, given my time in Amsterdam a couple of years ago, uh, I can totally understand why you fell in love with the place. So I mean, it's a, such a great city. Well, turning to the substance, uh, we could talk about so many different areas of both use ad bellum and use in bellum. Uh, you've written a great deal on both areas of law. But I thought that one of your most recent articles co-authored with uh, Kinga Tiborizabo on self-defense against non-state actors would be a really interesting focus for our discussion. It's obviously an area of considerable debate. Uh, and indeed, you and I have had opportunity to debate some of those aspects uh, in the context of the unwilling or unable doctrine. But in this article, you really focus on the centrality of necessity to the analysis in a way that's really interesting and arguably important and different from uh, many of the other arguments on this issue. So before we get to necessity, though, I, I mean, maybe I should just turn it over to you and you can sort of walk us through uh, the very methodical argument that you and Kinga make about why it is that states are entitled to use force and self-defense against non-state actors within the territory of a non-consenting state. Right. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of try to summarize the article without, uh, you know, being too uh, too prolix about it. I hope the there's a whole debate about, of course, that goes uh, beyond just the the most recent uh, stuff that's come out. It's been been around really for quite a while. Whether or not self-defense applies outside the, the interstate context. In other words, uh, whether it, it in principle is applicable to an attack by an armed group, which is not operating uh, under the uh, control or substantial influence of another state. I'd say that that debate goes back at least a decade, if not longer. Um, and that uh, certainly it, it is, um, gone through various stages, and the unwilling and unable thesis is one part of that. Of course, that even goes back to arguments put up by, by various countries going all the way back to the 1970s and 80s, when the 
words unable and unwilling were first used in the Security Council by Israel, for instance, uh, right. to uh, justify attacks on uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon. And there are you know, lots of different things contributed to this. And, and I realized that our article is just one piece in that. We thought that we had something to say. Uh, Kinga was a very uh, talented PhD candidate of mine who wrote her uh, dissertation on anticipatory self-defense a couple of years ago and got the uh, Lieber Society Prize for the best uh, publication for that year. Anyway, that, that so we've been working together uh, since, and she's part of my research group, LACMO, uh, which you visited uh, a couple of times, Law of Armed Conflict right. and Military Operations. And um, our premise is that First of all, that the right of self-defense is grounded both in the charter and in customary law, and that customary law always recognized the right of states to react to attacks irrespective of the authorship thereof. That idea that customary law uh, always has recognized the possibility of employing self-defense against an attack mounted by a non-state actor, which is not under the control of a state, can be traced all the way back to that correspondence between uh, Webster and Ashburton in the early 19th century and the famous 1837 Caroline incident. Um, in our view, there's nothing in the travaux preparatoire of the charter which indicates that the founding states of the UN intended to modify or curtail the right of self-defense as it then existed. Of course, the 19th century version of self-defense was considerably wider than it was in 1945. It included self-preservation and armed reprisals and Pacific blockades for non-payment of debts and all kinds of other things. But by the time uh, World War II had ended, that had been narrowed down to a right of self-defense against an attack. You can see that in the uh, statements made by countries uh, at the conclusion of the Locarno Pact and the Pact of Paris of 1928 and the you know in the interbellum years. Right. So we have a an established right of self-defense, which never excluded, in our view at least, the possibility that an attack could be mounted without significant state support or control involvement. Now, if you accept that as a starting point, then. Then, then you have an easier time of if you don't accept that, because it's a school of thought that says, no, the intention behind the founding of the charter was to completely curtail that right of self-defense to a very narrow exception. And since the prohibition of the use of force only relates to states in that view, uh, then self-defense would logically also only relate to them. So there's an, there's an op opposing view to ours. but then. Anyway, either way, whether you accept our view or the more narrow view, anyone will have to look at state practice since 1945. So we divided our legality questions. We had four legality questions. The first one was, was there any, any curtailment of the existing right of self-defense? I've already addressed that one. Then we look at the position of states took during the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s up to the end of the Cold War, say. Right. Was there any practice there that, that, that showed a, a, a clear change in the law? We conclude that there were a number of instances where the Security Council condemned actions 
which were directed at armed groups which were being harbored in, in or supported by uh, various uh, countries. But we don't see from that those the state practice of the Security Council statements any attention to change the law in the sense of only allowing um, self-defense in cases where state is involved. So if we could just pause there for a second, and I mean, just staying with the first question for a moment, I mean, it, it strikes me that okay. there's a possibility, as you say, I mean, one could either reject your view and say that self-defense is only available against states, mm-hmm. or your view is self-defense is available against states or and or non-state actors or any author of an armed attack. Mm-hmm. But it strikes me that there's possible that there's something somewhat in, in the middle in the sense that the use ad bellum itself and the prohibition on the use of force is a prohibition of the use of force against states. And so mm-hmm. it's not to say that states are not permitted to use force against non-state actors, but it is perhaps to say that the use of force against non-state actors, if they're not within the territory of some other state or if they're not uh, the proxy of some other state, isn't really a matter that is within the scope of use ad bellum at all, right? So if mm. a pirate group launches what would constitute an armed attack against the United States, and the United States uses force against that pirate group on the high seas, that's not really a use ad bellum issue, right? It's not, even a, it's not really necessarily an act of self-defense as contemplated by Article 51 of the Charter. It's just simply uh, a use of military force against a pirate group on the high seas. Right. But it becomes a use ad bellum issue mm if and when that non-state actor is operating within the territory of another state, and the use of force against that non-state actor is also going to be, uh, by necessity, a use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence uh, of the state, the territorial state. And so- Let let me address that question. I mean, the the question of piracy is a separate one, I would say. It's a- First of all, it, it, it happens in the international commons. And so, and a pirate vessel is not considered to have any nationality. It doesn't have any, doesn't pertain to any state. Um, that that's, goes right. all the way back to the 18th century or even longer. So it's, there's no interstate question involved there. Right. Um, it's been recognized in customary laws and ability for a state to exercise law enforcement powers um, outside its territory. It's one right. of the few explicit authorizations for that. There's no such authorization to use law enforcement p- powers on another state's territory right. in the absence of consent. So that's where the use on bellum part comes into it. If if right. you if you're reacting to an attack, for instance, from state A's territory without the state's involvement, right. but you enter its territory without its consent for whatever reason then you're going to need a justification under the USAD bellum to do that. Right. And that is where the, the, the whole question of whether self-defense applies, yes or no, would enter right. into the argument. Since in most of those situations, it's unlikely that the Security Council would be offering a mandate which would allow that. It's not out of the question, but right. if it happened, then that would be your legal basis. But in the absence of a Chapter 7 mandate by the Council, or consent by the state, you will need to have uh, some justification. And the only one that's a, that, that is left, that is at least recognized, is, is self-defense. Right. I know there's some authors who talk about what they call extraterritorial law enforcement. 
Um, Dinstein is one of them. Right. But I, Dinstein does that in the context of a modality of the application of self-defense in a specific context. Right. It's treated in his chapter on self-defense, and it's one of the modalities that he looks at alongside wars of self-defense and, and other possible situations where self-defense could arise. So it's not a separate legal basis. It's just a way you would apply self-defense in a particular context. Right. Now, if, if the state itself is involved with the attack, either directly or indirectly, that goes back to the Nicaragua judgment of 1986, then we have an established basis. I mean, there's no controversy about that whatsoever. Everyone uh, pretty much agrees, obviously, that if a state itself conducts an attack, you have a right of self-defense. But also pretty much everyone agrees that if a state actually exercises control over or is substantially involved, whatever that means, with an armed group to the extent that that it is, you know, pretty much controlling uh, its operations or it directing its actions and so forth. Think of the Bay of Pigs invasion, for instance. That would be a classic example. Right. Or so-called hybrid attacks, where you send call, so-called volunteers across the border right. to take action, but they're basically state armed forces with the national insignia taken off the shoulder. Um, <laughs> so the, those are easy. Those, those are easy cases in terms of attribution. Right. What really, where the real difference of opinion lies, I think, is whether or not actions by armed groups, say, take it, for example, al-Shabaab in Somalia, which don't have any state which is controlling them. Right but are capable of mounting large-scale operations on their own account, both within the country and outside the country, on an ongoing and sustained basis. Whether that type of situation could give rise to self-defense, even in the absence of consent of the territorial sovereign. Right. Obviously, if there's consent, then we don't need self-defense because we've got consent and there's no violation of that state sovereign. Right. So that's that's where I think the controversy is. Right. So and just to put it in a nutshell and sharpen the, the, the point, the, the issue is, the question is not whether you can use force or whether self-defense is permitted against non-state actors per se, but it's whether self-defense is permissible against non-state actors that are not under the control of the territorial state, but are within the territory of a territorial state, right. and whether they can right. be used against those non-state actors without the consent of the territorial right. state. That's the only situation where self-defense would be relevant, actually, in its outside the, the, the usual context. Yeah. Right. And so much of the question then arises really on this question of, well, what, what do we mean? And, and you sort of touched on this. So the easy case is if the Taliban were exercising control over al-Qaeda such that the acts of al-Qaeda could be attributed to the Taliban in Afghanistan under the laws of state responsibility. That's an easy case. Mm-hmm. But then the question That's is... That's what I think the court meant when it referred to it called indirect armed attack. Right. That's in, in, in paragraph 195 of the Nicaragua merits judgment. It, it made a division between direct armed attack and indirect armed attack. Right. And that indirect armed attack is where the the state is controlling it or, or is substantially involved. That would be that, that would fit that situation. If, if in fact the Taliban did at the relevant time exercise control over 
Al-Qaeda. But I guess a lot of the controversy or disagreement, the debate, is over to what extent does there have to be some complicity or attribution of the acts of the non-state actor to the territorial state, right? So some take the position that there there need be none, right? That simply inability of the territorial state to prevent the armed attack is sufficient to justify the use of force against a non-state actor within the territorial state. Others, uh, you know, and I put myself in the camp of saying, no, there has to be some, you have to be able to attribute the actions of the non-state actor to the state in some way, even if it is simply by virtue of the, the territorial state being unwilling and refusing to consent to a use of force to prevent the ongoing or continuation of, of the armed attack. But you, uh, you and Kinga take a somewhat more nuanced view on this. Okay. Well, if it were as easy as just, you know, I was giving you a rundown of our article. So yeah. we went through the what we call the legality questions. And the, the legality questions were, do you need any attribution at all? In right. other words, does self-defense apply, yes or no, in the absence of any kind of attribution? And we, we presented both sides of the argument. We came up with our view, which we think, no, you do not. In the absence of, uh, of state control, the, the question would be whether or not there's a necessity of self-defense, not whether uh, there's a state involvement as being the, uh, the deciding factor. Then we looked into what we called the modality questions. Those were eight of those. That's why the article is titled 12 Key Questions. So four on whether self-defense applies, and uh, the eight were dealing with the unwilling uh, and unable doctrine, whether it gave rise to necessity in itself, and if it didn't, um, what does, uh, whether you need self-defense, um, consent from the state to exercise self-defense on its territory, and how proportionality would influence those uh, the situation as well. So basically, our, our premise is that necessity of self-defense is, is the existence of an armed attack, which is either ongoing or, or proximate. And I mean proximate in the sense of reasonably proximate. It doesn't have to be necessarily minutes or seconds, but it has to be foreseeable. It has to be definite. It, uh, it has to be identifiable. And there has to be credible evidence that an attack is, is going to be mounted. So imminent in the real sense of the word. Yeah, yeah. In other words, that you really do have, as Webster said, a necessity of self-defense, which leaves no other other uh, alternatives open. That's the second part of the necessity criterion. The necessity criterion is two-pronged. It's both the existence of the attack or imminent attack, and it's the lack of feasible alternatives, which would remove the need to take action on another state's territory without its consent. So if you, if you have a situation where an attack is ongoing or, or is imminent, then you will have to look and see, what are my alternatives? And of course, in, in the situation of armed groups operating from another state's territory, the logical first uh, alternative would be, well, the state in question would take action to prevent that attack occurring. Right. It would do what a sovereign is supposed to do under the general rules of state sovereignty, which were set up very nicely by Max Huber in the Island of Palmas case, 
and were repeated by the ICJ in its first case in Corfu Channel and are in Resolution 2625 that the General Assembly passed in 1970. Namely, you don't allow your state's territory to be used as a launching pad for actions which affect the sovereignty of another state, particularly by armed action, which would undermine its uh, authority and so forth. That's a well-established principle. Um, and so that it would be logical to call on that state to, uh, if it wasn't aware for some reason on its own that there were uh, that an attack was imminent or ongoing. It's unlikely, but it's not maybe out of the, the realm of possibility. And say, look, uh, we expect you to do something. Um, this is where the, the unwilling and unable people say, well, as soon as the state says that it can't or it won't, then automatically the necessity of self-defense will arise. Well, for us, it's an indication that self-defense necessity might well arise, but it isn't in itself the end of the argument, right. because there could be possible other, other situations. In other words, you might be able to forestall the action on your own territory. You might be able to get permission from the state to carry out a, a you know, extraterritorial law enforcement operation, the real sense of the word. In other words, okay, we're going to cooperate with each other. We'll send our gendarmerie across the border and they'll cooperate with your guys and we'll, we'll, we'll take these guys out. Right. We'll arrest them and we'll bring them to trial, you know, either in your territory or in ours. That would be a, sort of like a counter piracy operation. But then the difference would be it's not on the high seas, but it would be uh, on another state's territory with its consent. Right. So those are all alternatives that might arise. If they don't, then the question would be, okay, what, what is the nature of the threat? How serious is it? Um, are, there, are there possible other avenues which could thwart that uh, necessity? That, that would be, you know, that would, that would take care of the necessity argument if that were, that were a feasible argument, and there would be no claim of self-defense. Right. Where the unwilling people come in is they'd say, well, if a state doesn't uh, have the ability to control its territory, then, you know, then automatically there could be a necessity of self-defense, which arises. That might be true uh, in some cases, but there may well be situations where you can prevent an attack actually being carried out by action on your own territory, for instance. Right. In which case, there would also be no need to take extraterritorial self-defense measures. But in the absence of either of those, in other words, cooperation by the territorial state or permission to carry out an operation or the ability to uh, kind of counter the attack on your own territory, we could also include the Security Council possibility of a mandate, but that's, right. that's remote at best. Those alternatives, if they're not present, would, could give rise to the necessity of self-defense. But it's not the fact that the state is unable or even that it refuses the permission that automatically results in that necessity. It's the fact that there is an attack which is imminent for which there are no alternative. That's the deciding question in our view. Right. But isn't it possible that that's just sort of the flip side of the coin in the sense that if the state is unable to deal with the, the threat and the defending state has gone to the territorial state and provided evidence that, a, that an attack is imminent or that an attack is ongoing, and the territorial state is still unwilling to allow the defending state access or to, to use force, to consent to its use of force against the non-state actor within its territory, doesn't that move 
the unable state down the spectrum to be more of an unwilling state. And at that point, it comes within the scope of what the ICJ calls substantial involvement in the activities of the non-state actor. I mean, it's not control, but it is substantial involvement in the sense that it is now permitting in violation of the principles in Corfuciano that you, you mentioned, the, the, you know, the no harm principle. It's permitting this non-state actor to engage in armed attacks and is unwilling to allow the, the defending state to, to react. Doesn't it then become substantially involved such that you can say it's complicit and that, that to some extent the attack can be attributed to it? Not necessarily, and, probably, and not, certainly not in all cases. It, it, we looked at unable and we looked at three different possible situations where unable might arise. And of course, those are rough kind of categories. They could be a little bit more nuanced, but we look at, for instance, there could be a situation where the the government, uh, the state basically implodes and the government ceases to function effectively like Somalia right. was for many years. That's one situation of unable. There's no real, no door you can really knock on that would be able to give you any kind of meaningful permission anyway, since they don't control anything. Right. So that would be one possibility. The second possibility would be the, the kind of situation that I think at least uh, exists and existed for many years now in Lebanon, where armed groups have an autonomous presence inside a state and are actually in many ways more powerful than the state itself. Right. They are capable of operating on their own. The government may not have any desire to have them on its territory, uh, but there's not much they can do about it. And Lebanon is a good case for that. I lived in Lebanon for quite a few years. I did my high school there. When I was there, but yeah, between 1967 and 71, when I was there, it was still more or less still functioning reasonably well, but I was already noticing the writing on the wall towards the end of the time I was there. That started uh, after the so-called Black September when uh, PLO groups moved from Jordan, were driven out of Jordan by the a Jordanian army, and they relocated to Lebanon. And then after I left, uh, of course, the Lebanese civil war broke out a couple of years later in 73, lasted for a long time, and ended at the, uh, with, with intervention from outside, but with, you know, still large armed contingents, you know, maintaining a presence in the country, and particularly Hezbollah is what, one that comes to mind. Whether or not the Lebanese government, you could argue whether or not Hezbollah is, a, is an arm of the Iranian government or the Syrian government. I don't think it is. By I think that there's substantial involvement. That's what I would call substantial involvement. Right. I think there's substantial involvement of the Iranian government with Hezbollah without necessarily controlling it. But I don't think that the Lebanese government is uh, capable of uh, controlling it nor has it really substantial involvement, even though in some cases there were Hezbollah people in the government of Lebanon, right. several right. ministers. So um, that would be a second possibility. The armed group is sort of carved out its own territorial space and operates alongside a government um, as a sort of parasitic uh, <laughs> presence, a flea and a dog or whatever. <laughs> And it basically operates on its own. And I, I, I would argue from what I read that that was kind of the situation between there was cooperation. There was certainly 
some degree of ideological affinity and, and support, but there was certainly no control by the um, Afghan government over al-Qaeda in 2001, even though there was a large degree of... Right. Whether you would characterize that as substantial involvement or not would depend on what you, your definition of that term is. The problem with that term, even though it was used by the court in the 1986 decision, it wasn't defined. Right. There's no definition of what it actually is. I think the closest that um, thing that it, I've seen that makes sense to me anyway for substantial involvement short of effective control would be a sort of level of involvement that would be tantamount to overall control, like the Tadic decision. In other words, not directing every single operation, not necessarily you know, being uh, responsible for every act, but having a large say in the overall operational strategy and in um, the training and uh, financing and, and so forth, harboring and all sorts of things put together. Right. If you add all that up, then you come close to what I guess the ICTY meant with overall control. Yeah. So maybe we can just pause for a second and digress because I, I think you know, this is maybe an opportune moment. And I should preface this by noting that I think you, you did your dissertation for your doctorate on the Nicaragua case and actually attended the hearings. Am I recalling that correctly? That's right. I, 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 well, I wrote it on my, what I call litigation strategy. My supervisor was Sheptai Rosin, who, who was, of course, the authority on the ICJ, still probably is. His books are, if you're, if you're a serious scholar on the ICJ, his books are the go-to resource, you know, the on practice of the international court. He started uh, out back in the 1950s when he wrote his dissertation arguing that the court was an instrument of international diplomacy, and I agreed with that, alongside being a, a dispute settlement mechanism. And it fascinated me how Nicaragua employed the ICJ as a means to um, engage with a much more powerful adversary and gain some leverage over its policy by using the court as a means to... Uh, to kind of put pressure on the United States to end its support for the Contras. So in researching this litigation strategy concept, Nicaragua case was going on. I thought that was a, an absolute textbook example of, of what I would call an effective use of judicial diplomacy, using the court, International Court of Justice, to achieve a foreign policy objective. So since that was my dissertation subject, I went to the court's hearings on the Nicaragua case and listened to all the hearings and read all the evidence. Wow. Interviewed some of the lawyers, uh, some of the witnesses as well. Um, so, yeah. That's amazing. And is your dissertation published? Yeah, by Nyhoff. It's called Litigation Strategy at the International Court. Uh, I have to pick that up. I don't know if it's still in print. Uh, <laughs> you might be able to find it. That was, I wrote it quite a few years ago. Uh, yeah. I was a lot younger then. I still had my hair. <laughs> so, maybe we probably both did then. Yeah. Well, then let's just pause to talk a little bit about this attribution issue. Because it strikes me that people um, often misapprehend what the ICJ actually said in Nicaragua about attribution. And in particular, often confuse, it seems to me, the effective control test, which was used for determining whether the United States could be held responsible for the war crimes or violations of IHL by the Contras 
with the question of whether the United States could be held responsible, whether the acts of the Contras could be attributed to the United States for the purposes of determining whether the United States had uh, violated Article 2.4 of the Charter. Right. But within that second context, as you know, whether the acts of the Contras could be attributed to the United States, is this question of substantial involvement, right? And mm -hmm. the ICJ is taking that clause or concept of substantial involvement from paragraph 3G of the definition of aggression and finds that the mere financial support and supply of arms to an armed group will not rise to the level of constituting an armed attack, but it support, and here we get into what, what exactly does substantial involvement mean, but substantial involvement in the actions of a, a, an armed group will constitute a use of force. But as you say, we don't really know what substantial involvement is, although the ICJ uses it again in DRC versus Uganda, right? Mm -hmm. So do you have sort of thoughts on... Well, yeah, uh, I don't want to get into all the, the weeds of the Nicaragua case, but the, essentially the court found the United States um, responsible uh, for violating both the non-intervention principle and the use of force prohibition because of a number of things that it had done. It, it was a matter of public record that the United States isn't very good at what it calls covert action. <laughs> it's not very covert at all. So it was all published in all Congress. And, and all this stuff was cited back to the, to the court during the hearings. Um, so there were, you know, funds being appropriated to support the Contras. There were statements by high government officials in the Reagan administration saying that they supported freedom fighters called the Contras. And, and even the, the so-called covert action by the CIA off the coast of Nicaragua laying mines off its coast uh, were, were, were not very secret. So all this was really pretty, pretty clear. Nicaragua didn't have a whole lot of trouble proving that. So there was there was involvement with the United, even though the court didn't think that the United States set up the Contras, they found that the United States had financed it, equipped and helped plan some of the operations of the Contras over a period of several years. Now, the question of whether or not it amounted to an armed attack, this sort of financial and logistical support came up in the context of the United States plea of self-defense. Right. There's a justification that the United States raised before the court uh, in the earlier phase and before this, uh, the international community at large was that it was acting in self-defense, primarily collective self-defense of El Salvador as a result of the Nicaraguan support for various leftist militias operating at the time in uh, El Salvador, the FMLN group, uh, it was called. The court found with regard to that, that even though there was some evidence that the Nicaraguan government had provided some financial and logistical support to the FMLN for a period of a couple of years, that the evidence for the period after that was lacking, whether or not you agree with the court's finding is, is another question. I, I didn't, but uh, in that sense, I agreed very much with Judge Schwebel's dissent uh, that the court ignored a lot of facts. But more to the law, they said it couldn't possibly constitute an armed attack on its on its own. Right. So that was and they said that, you know, with the unless there was in fact ascending, then we go to Article 3G 
of the definition of aggression of, of an armed group or its control, um, then, then it would not uh, be an armed attack. So it wasn't only in the context of um, the responsibility of a state for the actions of a country violating IHL, but in my view, the control level that the court required for an armed attack was a high one. Right. They, they, they raised a very high threshold saying, you would have to go beyond mere harboring and, and logistical and uh, financial support and training and so forth, and actually be sending these, uh, these people across the border or, or controlling their operations for it to be an armed attack attributable to the state. And at the same time, that would also be the relevant level of attribution required to, for instance, attribute violations of common Article 3, which came up in that context. Right. Uh, and so the court raised that bar very high. That, uh, with regard to leaving aside the effective control for state responsibility question, with the U.S. ad bellum, of course, that, that caused quite a bit of dissent even at the time the decision was made. Two of the judges, of course, Strabel and Jennings, were not in agreement with the court's standard. I think that they made some compelling arguments in the sense that if you raise the threshold so high that an armed attack can only be a grave act, which is if it's carried out by an armed group, actually sent by uh, a state across an international frontier that leaves quite a bit of space open for states to use armed groups as proxies without there being any kind of lawful response to that outside your own territory. Right. Um, Jennings criticized that as unrealistic and unjust. Um, I agreed with him at the time, um, and I still do. But leaving that aside, the the uh, the question with attribution was unwilling and unable is a slightly different one because your question went back to if you refuse cooperation, don't you automatically make yourself substantially involved? And my answer to that is no. If, if substantial involvement means that you have to be training, equipping, um, providing assistance and advice on, on operations and that type of thing without actually exercising control, right. then mere refusal to allow a state to conduct a military operation on your territory wouldn't automatically translate into that, I don't think. Okay. For example, in Lebanon, I think it would be unfeasible, let's put it that way, for the Lebanese government to uh, allow the Israeli government to conduct an extraterritorial law enforcement operation in the southern part of its territory against Hezbollah. In fact, it probably would reignite the Lebanese civil war. So the fact that they don't, I don't think the government of Israel even expected them to uh, provide any kind of permission. And there's other possible situations where that also could be the case, I think. So which brings us to your point that really necessity is the key consideration. So why don't we sort of unpack that yeah. a little bit more now? Right. Well, I think that's always been, I mean, necessity is the driver of self-defense. Um, if you go to the Caroline dictum, which I think, you know, still uh, has some some, I, I know it's been overdone in, in some ways. I mean, it, it still, I think, captures the essence of self-defense. The essence of self-defense, in my view, is, in fact, the necessity to defend yourself against an attack in the absence of any other alternative, 
And and that that to me, it's the warding off of unlawful force by lawful force. And so whether you look at the customary rule itself or in its, in its earlier guise, it's interesting, for instance, that we quoted a, uh, an example given by Oppenheim back in 1905, which is quite a while ago. By this time, self-defense had already become a distinct part of what had been earlier self-preservation a century earlier. And he said, well, you know, if there was a band of armed men who were going to mount an attack against your territory and, you know, the government was capable of forestalling that, then there would be no necessity. But in the situation where it would not be possible to do that or would be inadequate under the circumstances because of conditions that were posed or un, un, uh, impossible to get uh, to cooperate without, for instance, uh, compromising your, your own defensive uh, action and so forth, warning them, for example, that an operation might be taken against uh, the group, then, then the necessity of self-defense would arise. And he, he, the interesting thing is, is that Oppenheim said that in 1905, as for, for him, a clear example of the necessity of self-defense. There was no controversy there for him, whether or not the, the state was complicit or not complicit. It was simply a question of the necessity being the driver of self-defense. Right. And, right. And, and that's how I, I've always seen it. I think that's what self-defense is really about. It's in criminal law, it's the same at, at the domestic level. It's not the exact same as in international law. The international law of self-defense allows the broader, I would say, scope of action to a state than it does normally to individuals, although in some states in the United States, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm not so sure anymore <laughs> where you can, can chase the, the person who attacked you and, and even continue the action after they've broken it off. But but normally speaking, when you raise a, a plea of self-defense in a, in a domestic criminal context, the, the question will be, well, you know, how, was the th- how did you perceive the threat? Um, was that credible on your part? Did it seem, you know, reasonable to any normal bystander that you would feel threatened under the circumstance? And were your actions taken completely in the context of warding off that threat? Right. And did you break it off when, when that threat was no longer there? And all that has to do with necessity. Right. It translates slightly differently into the international context with the armed attack prerequisite and uh, the question of you know, whether a government can actually be approached, whether the window of opportunity is there, whether uh, allowing uh, the state to, to take its time to reply to your to your request would already compromise your security and so forth and so on. With all those things would enter, in my view, it's factually driven, it's context uh, specific. There's no one um, size fits all necessity situation. It would, that would depend on the relevant circumstances at any given moment and the relationship between the state, the territorial state and the armed group its capacity to take uh, action, um, the relations between the two states themselves, um, all kinds of factors would enter into it, whether or not you would be driven to the point where you would have no alternative other than taking self-defense action without that state's consent. Right. But I think what, what, what struck me in reading the article and which 
struck me as making it somewhat different from, I think, the camp that you would tend to be slotted into as being the, the camp that is in favor of or supportive of the idea of the use of force and self-defense against non-state actors in non-consenting states is that unlike a lot of the proponents of the unwilling or unable doctrine, you're taking necessity seriously to the point of, as you say, that there is truly no other alternative. And that it suggests that indeed the defending state has to provide evidence, if not ex ante, well, certainly ex post, to justify its determination that the use of force was indeed necessary, that there was an immediacy and so forth. And that strikes me as a bit different from a lot of the proponents of the unwilling or unable doctrine who pay lip service to the idea of necessity. But, you know, necessity just seems to get glossed over in the support or defense of the use of drones in Yemen or Pakistan or any number of other places. And so maybe one question that arises from that is, to what extent do you think there is this obligation on the defending state to provide evidence? either ex ante when seeking the consent of the territorial state, or at the very least ex post in justifying to the international community that this was indeed uh, a necessary use of force? Well, going to the question of ex ante, I would start out with, when you're looking for alternatives to self-defense, if the window of opportunity there is there, for you to try that avenue and there's a reasonably, you know, there's a reasonable chance that that will succeed. I think you're required to do that in order to be able to say, well, you know, I've done everything that, I, that I'm supposed to do. Right. Although there might be situations, and I think there are, sometimes are, and I think they can be compelling, where that won't be feasible, either because of the imminent nature of the, of the, of the attack or because of the the possibility that your attack, your defensive action, if you took it later, would not be effective. Right. And so forth and so on. So, and there might even be other reasons. I think, I think it was um, justifiable for a number of the states that were operating um, air operations against ISIS in Syria, not to um, go via the Syrian government, simply because of the way the Syrian government had comported itself in the internal conflict in Syria, they said, yes, fine, but you'll be part of our counterterrorism effort and we'll, we'll be directing this uh, show. It's our territory, after all. Cooperating with a government like that, which used poison gas against its own uh, citizens um, and bombed hospitals systematically, was probably not an option that, that some governments wanted to follow, and I think justifiably. so. There, there, there are a number of reasons why you might not first knock on the door and uh, provide all your evidence. Um, but you are always, it seems to me, under, first of all, you report any act of self-defense. You are required under Article 51 to do that to the Security Council. And Dinstein, I think, has a good point when he re refers to what he calls a two-phases rule. The first report is one where you're setting out your, your reasons why you're doing it, and you're notifying all actors, including the territorial state and the international community at large, that you're exercising self-defense. The council then has the option to terminate your operation, if it so chooses. 
It has that power under Chapter 7. If it takes action itself, which would remove the necessity of self-defense. So that's an option that's open to the council. They have the last word. So that's the requirement under Article 51. And then after you, or while you're doing it, and after you're doing it, you'll have to provide evidence that, that is credible. The exact degree of evidence uh, is, is a question of, of some discussion, whether it's a preponderance of evidence or clear and convincing, or it certainly isn't beyond a reasonable doubt, I would say. It's not a court of criminal court of law. Right. But it would have to be, you know, credible and convincing evidence in our view that you really did have a necessity of self-defense. A, that there was an attack. Now, sometimes it's self-evident. Right. Um, right. It, it, it's not really, you know, it's not really difficult to prove in some cases, but in some cases it may well be. And and certainly the question of no options, what you would have to explain your conduct, your reasons. And of course, that may or may not receive everybody's acceptance, but at least you've taken the, uh, I mean, you. it's not just being polite. I think you were under requirement to do that because self-defense is is, is not nothing. I mean, you're, you're, you're conducting a military operation on somebody else's territory. You have to, you have to justify that. Right. And so I, I would say you're always under an, under an obligation to do that within the context of both Article 51 and customary law. Yes, you get to decide, in the first instance, whether there is a necessity. That's true. But self-defense is not above adjudication or third-party decision-making. I mean, Lautipak proved that back in the 1930s. Right. And it strikes me that the, the one other uh, aspect of your argument that, again, departs somewhat from the nor- what I would consider the mainstream of the camp that supports the unwilling or unable doctrine is that your treatment of imminence is is much more in line with the traditional understanding of imminence. We're going to actually have, an, uh, I think, an entire episode on imminence, but perhaps you can just say a few words on how you understand imminence within the context of your argument on defending the use of force in self-defense against non-state actors. Well, it's a, a concept that is definitely temporally um, defined. It's, it That doesn't necessarily mean that it's... That's the problem with the literal wording of the Webster prose from the 1837 incident. It looks right. like unless you're, you know, a guy's actually pointing a rifle at you but hasn't exactly pulled the trigger yet, you, that's the moment where you would get to use self-defense. Right. But that, that's close to what it would be in the criminal law context. Because we assume that the state has a monopoly of force and is capable of effectively enforcing the laws and so forth. So the fact that the, that the guy across the street owns a hunting rifle or uh, an assault weapon or whatever and doesn't like you <laughs> and you have had a lot of altercations and he might you take it out of his you know, uh, bedroom, load it up and, uh, and, and fire it you know, at you uh, mowing your front lawn, maybe someday, you don't know when and where, but it could happen. It's not imminence. Right. Either is just, you know, the, the preparation of walking into a, a room and taking the rifle down uh, or even loading it necessarily imminent self-defense. But coupled with a number of other acts which point to a probability or almost certainty that, that an action is going to follow. That's what it's about, it seems to me. Now, in the, in the international legal spectrum, it's a little bit different because we don't have a police force. 
and the Security Council isn't really a, a replacement for that, although it was originally intended to be that way, but it's never really functioned like that. So it's clear that I think that imminence can come in different. I know you can argue whether, you know, a particular instance was or wasn't imminent enough to trigger self-defense. I know that people's views differ on the six-day war or the bombardment of the Osirak reactor. I would consider the six-day war to be a justified anticipatory self-defense claim. I would not view the bombardment of the Osirak reactor as a justified anticipatory self-defense claim. And the reason for that is the go back to the necessity thing and the lack of feasible alternatives. Right. That's where it really comes home. I mean, as I said, on, on our way to, to the Middle East uh, when, in 1967, we, we had to break our trip because of the 67 war. So the, I, I've never really forgot. I've, I've read quite a bit about it since then. It, was, it had quite an influence on my life, I guess, even though I wasn't there at the time. But the, the situation was, of course, you know, the whole series of acts had been undertaken, the U.N., peacekeeping force had been sent away. Uh, there'd been a mobilization of forces in Egypt. They'd been sent to forward positions. A general command uh, had been formed between uh, Syria and Egypt and, and Jordan and so forth. And there had been verbal threats made about the continued existence of Israel. So the Israelis, maybe they use it as a pretext. I know that some stuff has come up later that, that might cast doubt on some of the facts that, as they appeared at the time. But you only can judge facts as they appear at the time, it seems to me, and right. not what you know the next day or the next week or year. And at the time, it seemed credible that, that Israel was faced with the possibility, real possibility, probability even of an a- attack occurring within a, a fairly short time frame. And the last window of opportunity, to use a word that's often used in this context, would have been before that strike had been undertaken. The Dutch declared war on Japan on the 8th of December, 1941, the day after Pearl Harbor. That's six weeks before the Japanese landed in what was then Dutch territory in the Far East, the Dutch East Indies, Indonesia. Right. So when the Dutch declared war, there was not yet a landing on Dutch territory. They formed an alliance with the United States, Britain, and Australia. They tried to forestall a Japanese attack. They lost the Battle of Java Sea. Uh, A lot of streets in the Netherlands are named after the admiral who was in charge of that allied fleet in the Java Sea, Karel Dorman, who went down with his ship uh, and is a hero in the Netherlands. Anyway... The Tokyo Tribunal ruled that the declaration of war by by the Netherlands was not in violation of uh, international law at the time, the 1928 Paris, uh, Pact of Paris-Calabrian Treaty. And they actually referred back to the Caroline case, just like the Nuremberg Tribunal had done in rejecting the German plea of self-defense for invading Norway in April 1940 based on information that they gained after they conquered France. <laughs> uh, after they gotten hold of contingency plans that the French and British had to invade northern Norway to stop uh, iron ore shipments going down from 
Sweden uh, to Germany and to assist the Finns against the Russians in the Winter War, they used that at the Nuremberg trial as a pretext, as a defense for the invasion of Norway. The court rejected that and said that that kite won't fly because you can't possibly make a plea on the basis of an imminence of attack based on information that you gained a year later, <laughs> or months later, after you had, you had gained a military victory elsewhere. So right. what this illustrates to me is that this idea of anticipatory self-defense existed at the time the charter was adopted, just like this concept of self-defense wasn't limited to a particular author existed. The court's reference to the, to the uh, Caroline uh, criteria of necessity being the driving uh, factor in uh, self-defense is relevant in that context. And um, that brings me back to what you were saying. I don't know if all the unwilling and unable people that um, have written some good articles and some other articles, uh, both sides have written. <laughs> I hope ours is good. I think it is. But but I mean, I think there's good stuff written on, from various points of view on this topic. Right. In other words, I don't think that if you take the unwilling and unable concept as your sort of starting point, that it necessarily means you're wrong. What I don't, what I miss though, and the is the if you look at some of the the stuff, it's it's not unwilling or unable in itself. It's got to be in relation to the existing criteria for self-defense. You can't make up a new set of criteria which all of a sudden make it possible for you to take or not take action in self-defense. The, un, the unable or unwilling thing has to relate to the necessity doctrine. Right. That's the only way it makes any sense. And since it relates to it, but it doesn't replace it, it cannot supplant the rest of the criteria for necessity that there are in, in the ad bellum rules relating to the use of force. So it isn't an automatic sort of get out of jail free card. Oh, you're unwitting and unwilling. That's the way some people seem maybe maybe seem to 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 view it. When you look at drone strikes, I, I mean, there's a whole lot of controversy there relating to whether or not you know. There's all kinds of arguments out there. You know, okay, we're at war with Al Qaeda and its affiliates, so we have the right to use uh, force uh, anywhere where their members of that group are located and can pose a threat. So that's sort of a, a kind of ratione loci argument with regard to the applicability of the law of armed conflict. IHL applies, uh, they're the enemy, so we can, we can take them out uh, kind of argument. And, uh, and then you, you get that all confused with ad bellum arguments about, okay, we have the right of self-defense and that, that is still an ongoing right. And if Al-Qaeda relocates to another another venue, then that doesn't terminate the right of self-defense and so forth. The whole problem with a lot of that is that it seems to me that that you're losing sight of the, the, the specific context of 9-11. 9-11 was based on, you know, the reaction of the international community to 9-11 was based on a specific set of circumstances that existed at that time right. in Afghanistan. Right and doesn't necessarily translate to anywhere else. Um, so you don't get to use your initial justification to go anywhere. And I think the whole problem has been really complicated by the fact 
that domestic U.S. law has gotten in the way of it because the, and I'm getting to a realm of law that is not my specialty, but I read a little bit about this. And I understand that in the United States Congress, the justification for the action for 9-11 was the ongoing justification for all actions after that, simply because there was not the political consensus within the Senate to renew or, or modify it. Right. So right. successive uh, uses of force and even administrations were relying on the original mandate that they received to, to take action um, as the basis within the United States national security law context. But that doesn't necessarily have anything, in my view, at all to do with international law. It should, but it probably doesn't. <laughs> right. Um, right. So... <laughs> Uh, so because of that, you know, because it wasn't a new justification given, there wasn't a new request made, which was debated and, and approved by the Senate. To, OK, now you can use force in Yemen. Now you can use force in consultation with the government of Nigeria against Boko Haram. Now you can use it here, there or in Algeria or whatever. And then showing if you're pleading self-defense again, that. You know, you have a necessity of doing that. Right. Again, there would have to be a case made out that there were no alternatives, that there wasn't a feasible chance of getting cooperation from the the state in question, and that might be a very different kettle of fish depending on where you're talking about. So, uh, I, I mean, a lot of things got confused in the whole debate about whether the continuing drone strikes, whether you call them the war on terror, or can you know, anti-terror contingency strikes, whatever label you put on them, was caught up in a whole lot of other things than whether or not self-defense still applied on the basis of the initial armed attack mounted by Al-Qaeda against the United States in September 2001. Right. Well, listen, I think we have begun to scratch the surface of all of the arguments in your favor. I think this is a great note to end on. Uh, thank you so much for going through this with us. Uh, and I, I really think that the, you know, the argument at the end of the day that necessity is the central uh, element that one has to look at in, in terms of thinking about the use of force against non-state actors in non-consenting states is, is a really important contribution. Uh, but before I let you go, uh, I'm going to ask you to share sort of three recommendations of readings that you think uh, our listeners might be interested in. Okay, well, since I, I got notice from you that I, I'm not bound by international law of use of force or even <laughs> international law, that, that opens up certain possibilities that I hadn't realized. But I'll start with an international law book. Um, I can't recommend highly enough the book by Kinga Tibori Sabo called Anticipatory Action in Self-Defense, which is published by Springer Publishers. It's still in print. It's, uh, it's, it's available. And I think it's an ex excellent piece of work in the sense that it really goes into the historical background, goes all the way back to just war doctrine, but it traces it up to 19th century and 20th century practice and looks at a number of cases um, where anticipatory action was uh, uh, claimed and, uh, and, and, and gives a pretty good assessment of the state of of that particular plea within self-defense. So I think anyone interested in self-defense, 
I can recommend that as a, as a good piece of scholarship, which is also readable and opens up an historical perspective, which isn't always there in a lot of international law scholarship. Great. Um, my second recommendation uh, would be, you know, it's still an international law thing, uh, but it's a classic, and I'm not sure that people are always aware of the classics these days. I still think one of the best pieces written on the Yusef Bellin was by Humphrey Waldock at the uh, Hague Academy of International Law in 1952. That is a long time ago. That's the year I was born. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Waldock was, I think, one of the preeminent scholars of international law in the 20th century. He had a he combined a, a really thorough grasp of the history and theory of international law with its practice. He, of course, was the legal advisor to the Admiralty in World War II, uh, the British uh, Minister of the Navy. Yeah? And of course, he was behind such things as the hunt of the Graf Spey and the law of uh, naval warfare with convoys and all that stuff. But and when he came to the International Law Commission, the court, he, he made you know, a huge contribution. He was also a, a real diplomat. You, you can see that with the Tehran hostages case, where despite the political divide, the court came down very clearly uh, on, on some important points of international law without it splitting along the usual uh, ideological geographical divide. So I, 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 would, I would recommend that uh, mm -hmm. as, a, as a very important piece of work. Interesting. And finally, I, I want to do something more frivolous because, um, you know, I, I, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy or Jill a dull girl. So I, I like science fiction a lot. Um, oh. One of my favorite authors is Jack Vance. Uh, Jack Vance is, uh, you know, maybe not as well known as uh, some of the Asimov or Heinlein, perhaps, but, but I think he's written some really good stuff. The... Uh, a book I'm going to recommend, though, isn't really a science fiction book. It's more of a fantasy book. It would be more uh, in, in the Tolkien realm. And it's called uh, Maduk and the Green Pearl. It's a, it's a trilogy. But the first one in that, in that trilogy is called um, the Maduk, M-A-D-O-U-C. It's the name of a girl. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's great reading. It's great uh, recreational escapist stuff. You know, uh, on days where you're you're confined to the house in pandemic uh, Holland or, or or Kansas, and uh, the weather doesn't permit you to go for a walk, that's that's a nice thing to open up with a cup of coffee alongside. So, yeah, this will this will keep our listeners busy. Well, listen, Terry, thank you so much for for taking the time to to be with us today. Uh, this has been wonderful. Lots of food for thought for our listeners. Uh, stay safe, and hopefully yeah, post-pandemic we can catch up uh, again over a pint in Amsterdam. I was looking forward to that very much. Thanks very much for having me. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. Tune in next episode where we have something of a different format for you. It'll be a little bit of a surprise. And we have a few other episodes after that already lined up, dealing with the issues of imminence, the protection of civilians in armed conflict, the official Japanese government views on the Yusat Bellum regime, and much more. And again, if you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact info is also on the website at jibjabpodcast.com. 
and you can find links to the material discussed today and the reading recommendations, as with those of every other episode, on our website as well. And if you're enjoying the podcast or finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your blog posts. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students all about it. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at at JibJabPodcast for updates on coming episodes. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, stay safe.